Over the next few weeks, we're going to be studying together some of the signs that are found in the Gospel of John. And, uh, but before we begin to unpack the passage of Scripture before us this morning, I would like to put it into some kind of a biblical context. St. John's purpose for writing his Gospel is pretty clear. He states it very clearly in John 20, verse 13. He writes, Now Jesus did many other signs, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of God, and so that through believing you might have life in his name. So he says, my purpose in writing, my purpose in laying out these seven signs is to really lead you to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah, the Messiah, the Son of God, so that believing in him, you might have life. St. John's Gospel is different from the other three Gospels, which give us a chronological timeline concerning the life of Jesus. They are called the synoptic Gospels, but John doesn't do this. Instead, he chooses to give us seven snapshots from the life of Christ, and he hops around and doesn't pay any attention to when these events actually took place. He's out to prove a point, namely, Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. These seven snapshots of Christ's ministry are called signs. Signs are intended to lead us somewhere. They're not an end in themselves. We were driving in from uh, uh, Langley today from Walnut Grove, and there's a sign that says Highway 7 or Highway 17. I'm not sure what it is. 17, I think it is. And uh, it says Coquitlam, and uh, it also says Lowheed, and it also says uh, 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 Burnaby. So we took that uh, sign and we took that turn and then came to a crossroads, uh, Highway 17 and Highway 17B. All the difference in the world. Fortunately today, not the first time, but today I took... 17. And here we are. Now, the point that John is making is that these miracles are signs. And if you follow them, they'll lead you to Jesus, the Messiah. But there's other signs out there that if you're not careful, that look very similar, and they can lead you astray. So we have seven miracles that we're going to look at today. These miracles reveal to us different aspects of the nature and character of Jesus. John says they reveal his glory. So what do these signs do? They lead us to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. We follow them correctly. And as we do, we will see his glory, his true nature, his character, who he really is. And they are designed to lead us to faith in him. And they are, in short, intended to lead us to the sign giver. 
Now, the first of these seven signs takes place in Cana of Galilee. Cana was a small village located in the hill country west of the Sea of Galilee and about eight miles north of Nazareth or about uh, 12 kilometers north of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And in Jesus' day, weddings were the social highlight of people's lives. And in those days, everyone in the village and surrounding area would be invited to attend. So no wedding invitations were given out like they are to us today. Uh, when we were in Africa and visited in the communities there, if there was a wedding, we were invited. The whole community was invited, not only the village, but the surrounding countryside. And so that's how it was in Jesus' day. Weddings took place, you're invited. You're a part of the celebration. And they lasted up to seven days. Can you imagine? Seven days? All the preparation that needs to go into a wedding, in seven days it could last. Now think of what that must have meant to a peasant farmer whose main meal consisted of some bread, olive oil, cheese, and water, or cheap wine, because that's all he could afford. It must have taken this poor man years and years of sacrifice to put on a wedding, because a wedding was a time when there was plenty of meat and wine, and the dull, drab diet of bread and cheese was replaced with a banquet of wine and rich food. At such a wedding, hospitality was everything. So if I was invited people to a wedding, hospitality demanded that everyone have enough, enough to eat and enough to drink. To run out of wine would have been a major embarrassment and would have brought shame on the entire family. The Jewish culture was not a guilt-based culture. It was a shame-based culture. To run out of food would have brought shame on the family and on this young couple for the rest of their lives. And every time they turned up to McDonald's for a hamburger, there would be pointing and whispering behind their back. And so by rescuing this poor family from their shame, Jesus is revealing God's great concern for each one of us. He's always concerned with the smallest personal details of our lives. So the miracle is a sign of God's loving kindness, his grace, his love, his concern about the smallest details of our lives. I don't know what uh, fears and anxieties and uncertainties you are facing this morning, but I do know that you are not alone. God is with you. He will take care of you. And this is an important truth. The author to Ecclesiastes says, God makes all things beautiful in its time. That's a statement of faith. God makes all things beautiful in its time. Paul in Romans 8 says that all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. The problem is sometimes in the midst of our trials and our troubles and our disappointments and our grief, personally speaking, we can't see what God's doing. It's only in hindsight as we look back that we see the marvelous hand of God at work and we can say in faith, all things work together for good. But in the midst of it, we just hang on and trust. But it's passage of scripture is teaching us that God cares about the smallest details of our life. And he is present with us in the midst of those difficulties and trials 
and uncertainties. When I flew into uh, Rwanda after the genocide, uh, over a million people were killed in the genocide between Tutsis and Hutus in uh, the mid-90s, and it was a terrible time, uh, leaving about a million people uh, with, uh, and children without uh, families and support. It was a very emotional time for me, and I remember saying to God, where were you in the midst of all of this? And before I went, I asked him to show me. I said, Lord, please show me Rwanda through your eyes. And when the airplane was uh, descending into Kigali, uh, I began to cry. And I wept for 78 days that I was there. I couldn't stop weeping. I woke up in the middle of the night uh, discovering that I was weeping. And I said, Lord, what's going on here anyway? And... Uh, he said to me, you asked to see Rwanda through my eyes. He says, I was crucified here in Rwanda with my people. Every machete blow that was struck on them was struck on me. I died here in Rwanda in the midst of my people. What this story is all about is a God who cares for us and who is present with us whatever our circumstances might be. He never leaves us. He never abandons us. He wraps his arms around us, and he carries us when we can't carry ourselves. He's a God who cares. Cares enough to take away the shame of a young couple who don't have enough wine to give to their guests. Now, I don't want to minimize the importance of God's great love, mercy, and care, the fact that his presence is with us, whatever the circumstances of our lives. On the other hand, I think there is much more going on in this story than just that truth. But we won't discover it if we don't uh, take some time or if we're in a hurry. So I want to slow down for a moment and take a second, more contemplative look at the text. This story of turning water into wine needs to be placed in the context of the culture of that day and of the Old Testament scriptures and the biblical narrative. And when we put that story in that context, there is a lot more going on here. First of all, this miracle also points to Jesus as our sovereign creator. Before every Jewish wedding, the host would stand up in front of his gathered guests and he would declare with a full chalice before him, Blessed are you, Lord our God, sovereign of the universe, creator of the wine. Blessed are you, Lord our God, sovereign of the universe, creator of the wine. Of the wine. So here is Jesus, and what is the first thing he does? Turns water into wine, thus declaring him to be the sovereign God, the creator of the wine. The only one capable of performing such a feat is God. 
Jesus is thus declaring his glory. The one standing in their midst as a sovereign Lord of the universe, the creator of the fruit of the vine. You can let water sit on your kitchen counter for a thousand years, but at the end of the day, it is still H2O. Only God is the creator of the wine. Think about it for a moment. John is saying that this man, Jesus, a son of Mary, who grew up in the small nearby village of Nazareth and who worked as a carpenter or as a bricklayer alongside his father, Joseph, is actually the sovereign Lord God of the universe. Remember John's prologue? He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made that were made. Nothing was made that has been made. In other words, he's saying in his prologue, that through Jesus, a second member of the Trinity, or a third member of the, uh, second member of the Trinity, the universe came into existence. Let's be uh, honest for a moment. To a Jew who believed in one God, this would be blasphemous. And to the modern mind, the deity of Jesus sounds equally ridiculous. A good moral teacher? Yes. A friend of the poor and broken? No question. An advocate for social justice? Without a doubt. But divine? Give me a break. So this miracle grabs the attention of the people. It forces them to take a closer look at this man whom they knew as Jesus from Nazareth, which was a throwaway town. Who is he anyway? What's going on? And John is saying through the miracle of turning water into wine, he is the sovereign Lord of the universe, the second member of the Holy Trinity. Powerful. He is God, divine, the sovereign Lord who controls all things. Secondly, this miracle reveals Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, God promised that one day he would send a special person to rescue his people and establish an everlasting kingdom. A rule, a reign, a government characterized by universal peace and prosperity. And the person who would do this was called in the Old Testament the Messiah. The anointed one, that's what Messiah means, the anointed one. He was to be a deliverer. Interesting uh, to note that this title is the one that the gospel writers give to Jesus. He is called Jesus the Christ, which is the Greek word meaning chosen one or anointed one. And the uh, anointed one or the Messiah would be a direct descendant of King David. And uh, the prophecies of the Old Testament say that he will sit upon the throne of his father David. And the people of Israel longed for such a deliverer. They could not wait for the Messiah to come. Generation after generation after generation, they waited and longed for this one, this promised one, who established a government where there will be peace and prosperity for all people. And in Jesus' day, the people lived and labored under the tyrannical rule of Rome. It was an occupied country. Roman soldiers basically patrolled the streets and countryside. The taxation was crippling, and the people hated it. They hated it. They hated it. They loathed the Romans, 
and they long for the coming of the long-awaited Messiah and his rule and his government. Now here's the amazing thing. In this miracle of turning water into wine, Jesus declares himself to be this long-awaited Messiah. In the Old Testament scriptures, the abundance of wine was associated with the arrival of the Messiah. There are a number of Old Testament passages of scripture and prophecies that predict that when the Messiah came, there would be an abundance of wine and food. Perhaps the clearest is found in Isaiah 25, 6-9. Where Isaiah says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and he will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord God has spoken. And Jesus fulfills this prophecy in two ways. First of all, by providing the finest of wine, and secondly, by providing it in abundance. We are told that there were six stone water jugs, and each jug would hold between 20 and 30 gallons of water. Uh, So Jesus provided the wedding guests with about 150 gallons of wine or over 90 bottles of the best wine. The prophet Isaiah indicated that the banquet would take place on the mountain of the Lord. It's important to note that Cana was located in the hill country of Galilee. And by turning water into wine, Jesus declaring himself to be their long-awaited Messiah who had come to set his people free from the power of sin and from death itself. Yesterday, I had a funeral for a man who was 97 years of age. He said to me one day, you know, Bob, um, I've lived too long. Everybody I know has died. He was married for 73 years. His wife, Elma, died ahead of him. Uh, Today is his 98th birthday. Uh, Bill, uh, when he was born, was in World War I. His dad uh, took off to England because he was from England because he was conscripted to fight in the war there. His mother, unable to cope with two small children, left him in the hospital with his brother and he was put into foster care. He never knew any family. Never knew his mother, never knew his dad. His body, uh, brother was put up for adoption and uh, He never knew who his brother was. He kicked around from foster care to foster care until he was about seven years of age and finally put into a home in the uh, West End where he became a permanent fixture of their home for the next uh, few years. First time he enjoyed any stability in his life from the moment he was born. At the age of 15, his father came to him, his adopted father, his foster father, with a package, it was a little bag with a sandwich in it. He said, you're now on your own. At 15 years of age, he was out in the streets, living under underpasses, eking out a living, living from hand to mouth. But one day, he got married to a woman called Elma, who knew Jesus, 
And for the first time, he came to understand that God loved him and he could become a part of the adopted family of God. And he gave his life to Jesus. He found identity. He had three children of his own and family was everything to him. But on February the 13th, Bill died. Not really. Because the Messiah takes away the shroud of death. And so that ceremony was one of great celebration, that funeral. Because he was going home to the place that Jesus had prepared for him. So in this story, we have the amazing love that God has for each one of us. In this story, we see the deity of Jesus Christ. But we also see that he is the Messiah, the one who takes away the shroud of death and gives us hope, not only for today, but for eternity. Thirdly, the turning of water into wine is a sign of the joy associated with the kingdom of God. Wine is widely viewed in the Bible as a symbol of happiness, and a wedding is certainly the happiest of all occasions. In fact, later on, Jesus compares the coming of his kingdom, or his rule, his government, to a wedding feast. He writes, or he said, God's kingdom, he said, is like a king who threw a wedding banquet for his son. You want to know what God's kingdom is like? It's like a wedding banquet. We have a wedding banquet all prepared, said the king. And go out into the busiest intersections in town and invite anyone you find to the banquet. And the servants went out on the streets and rounded up everyone they could lay their eyes on, good and bad, regardless. That's the kingdom of God, you know. It's composed of both the good and the bad. Most of us find ourselves in the latter category, actually. <laughs> the good and the bad. That's the kingdom of God. And the hallmark of it is joy. It's joy. To be invited into the kingdom, to the wedding feast of the Lamb, and into the kingdom is one that is filled with joy. Listen to what Jeremiah says in his prophecy in chapter 31, verse 12. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and the herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. He's talking about the future kingdom. Jesus, the Messiah, came to usher into the reign of God, characterized by forgiveness of sins and intimacy with God. And the whole purpose of Christ's coming was to produce a life of joyous celebration. In the same way that Jesus brought joy to this wedding in Cana, he likewise brings joy into the lives of all those who embrace him as their king and savior. 
In Romans 14, 7, St. Paul writes, For the kingdom of God, or the reign of God, is not food and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Jesus summarized his own ministry in these words, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full, pressed down and overflowing. I really believe that joy is to be the hallmark of the Christian community. Joy ought to be the hallmark of the Christian community. So let me summarize. There's a lot going on in this passage of Scripture. By turning water into wine, Jesus is revealing the glory of his divine nature and his deep, deep love for each one of us. He also has the power to take care of all of our needs. We can trust him to take care of us. In addition, the miracle of new wine is a sign that a new day has dawned. The Messiah has arrived to usher in the kingdom of God. A kingdom not based on the list of rules and regulations, but on grace. And such a kingdom is to be marked by incredible joy. Notice the disciples' response. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples, what? Believed in him. The miracle caused the disciples to solidify their faith in Jesus. But the word believe is more than intellectual consent. We are not saved because we have this set of intellectual beliefs about God stored away on some index card in our minds. Some of the most critical, judgmental, obnoxious people I know believe all the right stuff. But we are not made right with God because we believe the right stuff. We are made right with God because we embrace the right stuff and make it a part of our life. St. John is talking about the kind of belief that leads to trust, which in turn leads to commitment, surrender, loyalty, love, and obedience. It's the kind of trust that impacts every aspect of our life and lifestyle. For the disciples, it meant leaving their nets and following Jesus. In short, believing in Jesus means trusting him with your whole being and allowing him through the power of his spirit to transform you so that you begin to take on the likeness of Jesus. It's similar to learning how to swim, really. One of the hardest things for me to teach my grandchildren was how to swim. We took them to the rec center and I said to them, you know, we would really like to teach you how to swim. Well, they would cling to the edge of the pool. I couldn't peel them off uh, the side of the pool. I said, you've got to trust me. You've got to trust me. Listen, I won't let you drown. I won't let you sink beneath the surface. My hand will be under you. You've got to believe until you feel the buoyancy of the water, I'm going to be there for you. Well, gradually, uh, when their mother took them out to swim, they learned how to swim and trust her. Similarly, faith in God means to let go and trust the buoyancy of God's grace and wisdom and power. And he says to us, I know it's hard to do that. It's hard. 
I know what works. I want to be in control and to trust you with my life. And God says, listen, I'll put my hand under you. You don't need to be afraid. And gradually, when you get used to swimming the Christian life on your own, I'll back off a little bit so that you can do it on your own with the power of my spirit living in you. To trust God is really to trust in his ability to take care of us. And when we do, he changes our lives. At least he should, if we let him. He will redefine our priorities, how we spend our time, treat our wife, children, and family, speak to one another, behave at work, spend, save, and invest our money, and what we allow into our eyes and ears and minds through entertainment and culture. Jesus said, I'll teach you to really swim. I'll teach you to swim. You're made to swim. Trust me. Let go. And if you do, your life will be transformed by my spirit. When problems of fear and uncertainties or temptation overwhelm us, we turn to God and trust him to give us the grace and the strength to live a better life. And when we mess up, we apologize and ask for forgiveness and ask for God's strength to do better next time. That's what it means to believe. It's not about a head knowledge. It's about a trust in the Savior where we let go and allow him to rule over us. Mary knew where to turn, and this miracle shows us that Jesus really does have the power to deliver and to make a difference in your marriage, in your business, with your children, and with your friends, and with the members of your church. Jesus is our God the sovereign Lord of the universe who has come to live amongst us in order to set us free. What a marvelous gospel it is. Lord, set me free. Set me free today, Lord. Help me be all that I can be under the power of your spirit. And may the new wine of the gospel transform me and fill me with joy. Amen. Thank you.